Hello, and welcome to the Customer Onboarding Podcast brought to you by Taskray. I'm your host, Jamie Cole, Chief of Staff at Taskray. And on each episode, I'll sit down with customer onboarding leaders to uncover the leading strategies, playbooks, and secrets to ensuring customer onboarding success within the first 90 to 120 days. I'm so excited for you to join us and listen to these industry leaders as we learn together how to be customer onboarding gurus. Well, welcome, Eric. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Jamie. I'm going to do a little background on Eric. So you've been a pioneer in the customer success industry as the co-founder and former CEO of Blue Wolf, which is acquired by IBM in 2016. Over the past few years, you've evangelized how other executives can lead their teams toward customer obsession by being a two-time author, TED speaker, and most recently with the publication of your new book, Customer Obsessed, which defines what customer obsession means for each era of tech. And today I'm thrilled to discuss your perspective on building frictionless customer experiences, specifically on what frictionless handoffs look like across the customer experience, why first impressions are key to continued customer health, and how customer leaders can ensure that business needs and customer needs remain in perfect harmony. So that's kind of what we're gonna be talking about today. We can dive right in. Perfect harmony. Perfect harmony, that exists, right? Uh, during your time as CEO of Blue Wolf, you had exceptional, exceptional perspective on how leading companies were creating frictionless experiences throughout their customer's journey. What would you define as a truly frictionless customer experience? One that doesn't exist. And I actually mean that seriously. So, uh, and, and, you know, we were in the B2B world at Blue Wolf. We, we, were, we provided consulting services to companies of all shapes and sizes. But I think leaders have to, when they think about customer experience and when they think about this term frictionless customer experience, they actually have to define like what is the, what is the perfect experience that you want your customer to have? And the word frictionless really means there's there's no conflict there is no friction and i think in the ideal world when a consumer is using a product or a service and they are having a great experience with that brand they're not even sure why it just works and uh you know we can all think about our specific situations but when you think about what you're trying to provide in any walk of life even in a relationship um, the friction starts to come up when you're asking that person or individual to do things that are unnatural to them, that require them to do something they weren't prepared to do uh, through a misset expectation or uh, through a skill set that they don't have. So a frictionless experience is one that literally just takes the innate natural tendencies of your customer and uses it to that brand's advantage. Fascinating. I would agree with that. (laughs) Um, Why is making things smooth for your customer, or at least uh, along what you just said, more aligned with their natural tendencies, such a strategic mission and how does it pay off in the long run? Well, I think that's a great question. And the reason it's a great question is because organizations always need to be focused on outcomes. And if your goal is to provide a great experience for a client, you're actually doing it because you're hoping to achieve an outcome. And typically that outcome in most organizations can be a metric that might be a financial metric or a growth metric or a profit metric. Uh, But the reason you want to provide frictionless experiences to your customers is because that will create brand alignment in a way that will allow you to sell more products to them, to sell products that have a premium, to sell multiple products to a customer. And ultimately, great customer experiences translate into a better buying experience and a better user experience and a better brand experience that translates to your bottom line. I mean, that's really the why. You know, you think about how we love to buy products from Apple today. Uh, and maybe there are those of you out there that don't like buying products from Apple. Those people certainly exist. But you, know, you walk into an Apple store and 
immediately everything makes sense to you and there's someone there to help you and you end up buying many products. It's not just the phone or the laptop or the iPad or the iP or the, the earphones. Like we all find ourselves now living in an Apple world because they've done such a great job of creating experiences that don't hamper us, that don't ask us to do unnatural things, that don't provide us with steep learning curves. Um, and those are all impediments to a great customer experience, which also then really ends up in a, in a situation where you have brand disloyalty. Apple does a great job. I agree. And it's interesting. I've asked a couple of previous guests um, to name their number one onboarding experience and almost everyone says Apple because uh, it is so frictionless or seemingly seamless. But what are the top three areas of failure or weak points that you see from where most customer experience programs fail? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the biggest one is organizations that have silos and have this disconnect between sales and service, or maybe it's a disconnect between marketing sales and service. And in those organizations, you can feel as a customer that there is no handoff and, and that you're being treated differently along the way. So I think the first thing organizations need to do if they truly want to deliver great customer experience is they have to break those silos down. You know, maybe there's, you know, maybe you still have a customer service organization, but that service organization has to act like a marketing organization and a sales organization. And all three of those silos have to be trained and have to have your culture has to drive this fact that, you're always sitting in the shoes of your customer. So that, that's the biggest failure I see. And, you know, we all have horror stories about how organizations can't, you know, they trip over themselves yeah. um, trying to provide experience across their silos. Yeah. So when you, how would you circumvent that? How do you, would you coach a company to circumvent that problem? Uh, first of all, I think you have to have a common language that, where, where the customer is at the center of that language because you can then teach that language to your entire organization, regardless of what role they play. And that language has to have terms in it that are descriptive, that make sense that you don't you have to understand what an acronym means, or you don't have to know the serial number for something. So I think organizations that have figured out how to truly break down silos, create a common language that, makes those handoffs easier. Um, I think technology also plays a big role in providing great experience across your organization. So, you know, I, I'm the first to say that technology is not going to solve your problem, right? Customer experience is a people thing. Like customer experience is emotional, it's behavioral, and your employees in your organization have to be trained and they have to work in a common way to serve customers using that common language that I referred to. But if you don't have a technology platform that's helping you to drive that conversation and is helping to put knowledge in the front of your employees while they are serving customers, uh, then that common language is going to fall down in itself. So technology is also a big part of it and organizations that have invested in modern platforms to provide transparent data to their organizations and to show their customer in a 360 degree view uh, tend to be the ones that then can create that common language and deliver exceptional experiences regardless of the channel that your client is trying to engage with you on. So I'm assuming you guys did this at Blue Wolf, created a common language. We did. Yes. Absolutely. Um, of course. Yeah. So how do you, once you've done that, how, how do you keep everyone internally trained on it and up to date on it, especially as people come and go? Yeah. And that's why it has to be descriptive. Um, you know, we were also part of a big company called IBM that some people are familiar with. And this isn't a knock on IBM, but um, IBM tended to label things with letters and numbers and it was pretty frustrating when we were acquired because we had to all of a sudden learn this language that was literally like trying to learn Chinese. Um, there weren't hints and tips and there, weren't, there wasn't this descriptive way of, of 
branding what you're doing with your clients. Uh, so the number one thing is make it simple so that your onboarding is simple. Uh, don't make assumptions that your employees or your customers can easily decipher, you know, a four page email that's asking them to do something or is trying to train them on something. Um, we actually invested quite a bit in employee training. We did a lot of on-site training where we would get people together and where we would co-create together. Uh, we used design thinking uh, as a way to innovate uh, so that we continue to try to improve our services and therefore improve our customers' experience. And again, that was a together on-site thing. It wasn't a, and obviously, particularly in our current situation, that's actually impossible. Um, but I would encourage business leaders to really double and triple down on how you're communicating to your employees and how you're doing it in a simple way that is not making gross assumptions about their existing knowledge of your processes, of your language, and of your customer experience processes. Great. So at the heart of it, why do you think the handoff piece in particular is such a critical issue for customer experience? Because the number one mistake that organizations make is they ask customers to repeat themselves. I agree. <laughs> it's super and and I, I, I don't care if I'm a business customer of yours or I'm a, a consumer of your products. My time is more valuable than yours. I mean, that's, that's just how we all feel as human beings, right? Particularly if, I've, if I'm the customer and if I'm purchasing something, if you're getting a piece of my wallet, yeah. uh, don't waste my time. And it's, it is a big effort for organizations to truly create frictionless handoffs. It requires real business process. It requires strong knowledge management. Uh, it requires sometimes that you're doubling up on resources so that you can have, so that a customer can feel like they're being represented the right way by a person. Mm -hmm. uh, good handoffs are personalized. They're not templates that feel like it's a one size fits all because I don't care what industry you're in or what, uh, who you're trying to serve, every customer thinks they're different and unique and they deserve to be treated uniquely. Uh, so good handoffs need to be personalized. Uh, and again, you know, don't ask your customer to repeat themselves. Yeah. And again, a lot of that comes down to having a, a solid technology platform in place to support employees that you've trained and you've built a culture in a way where they're going to want to do the right thing. Right. So are there any, do you have, see any well-intentioned handoff tactics that actually backfire or people should be weary of really executing well? Yeah. I mean, what we would, what we saw in our business that we would, we would try to train people out of is they would always make the assumption that the, customer wanted to move faster than they were prepared to move. So a lot of it also is expectation setting. And what, you know, there are a lot of complex products and services out there, whether, uh, you know, whether you're a business or a consumer, um, you definitely want to dumb it down and go slow and make sure that you're getting everything through handoffs. And that's different than repeating, asking your customer to repeat themselves. Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between asking a question a second time, the same exact way it's been asked the first time. There's a difference between that and actually clarifying something yep. because you want to make sure you've, you've gotten it right. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, I think well-intentioned, I know well-intentioned consultants sometimes go too fast because, you know, they don't want to sound like they're just asking the basic tactics of their customers. And, right. and we would sometimes say, you know, you know what, there are little nuggets in there that you need to pick up early on. So, you know, there, there's, there's no bad question as long as you haven't asked it the same way before. Right. So now it sounds like, you know, at Blue Wolf in particular and your entire platform is that this is a full company, almost mantra, the customer obsession and the customer experience. 
how do you how would you try to convince companies who don't have it kind of baked into the dna that it is something that they should create as a strategic priority i think it comes down to a couple of things um you know i talked about silos a second ago you know i also we're, we're big believers that in innovative organizations people can wear multiple hats and it's actually safe to innovate and I would encourage businesses as they think about how they're nurturing their employees, number one, make sure everyone feels like they have a good career path. Make sure you have strong managers that know how to communicate career paths and know how to set goals for employees. Um, work on the tough skills and what the tough skills are, they're actually what we used to call soft skills. So help your people learn how to present, how to facilitate, how to run a room, how to ask open-ended questions, how to listen, how to have empathy. Because these are all qualities that work both internally and externally. If you're a company of great facilitators, if you're a company of great listeners, you're going to build stronger teams and that's going to show through in your customer experience and your customers will sense that. Yeah. And they'll give you more leeway too, as you struggle through the inevitable challenges of keeping clients satisfied. The other thing I would throw in there is when you think about creating an innovative culture, when you think about, those soft skill or those tough skills, something that gives you an advantage around those things is if you build a diverse organization. So if you're recruiting from all walks of life, and if you're not recruiting for skill as much as you're recruiting for the types of people that are out there. Yeah. And their backgrounds. Um, and, and even in a, in a highly, technical company, you know, in my opinion, and this is proven through, through a lot of research, it's very important that you don't just hire a bunch of engineers, right? You want to balance your, the engineering culture that might be needed in a software company or in a, in a device company. You want to balance that with people that, that also think on the other side of the brain. Um, so we, at Blue Wolf, we would hire, we, we had great engineers, but we also hired writers and musicians and artists, and we would train them on basic technologies. And then we would throw them all into a Petri dish and then they would come up with innovative solutions for clients. Right. That's well, and it's also a more fun work environment too, if everyone isn't homogenous. <laughs> it is. It's a more fun work. Absolutely. Like a diverse work environment is interesting. Yeah. People learn from it. Right. Yeah. If you hang out with yourself all day long, you're not going to learn a damn thing. True. It's pretty boring too. I think as we've all learned in quarantine. <laughs> Unless you just have a huge ego. Then, yeah, then that's that's true. True. That is true. So I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about the importance of first impressions. So the old saying, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Um, onboarding new customers, the point is even more evident because those failures early on can have lasting impacts. Why are first impressions so key during this period of time, in your opinion? I think when you buy a new product or sign a new partnership or hire a new employee or start a new job, your emotional antenna is on and it's ready. I mean, we're, we're all, at the end of the day, we're all positive people. Like, your emotional antenna is now ready for, that, is ready for that experience. But it's very sensitive at that moment. So if that first moment is a, is a downer, it's also because your emotional antenna is so high, it actually runs the risk of creating the most doubt at this stage of the relationship. You, know, you just made this decision, it was an emotional decision. You just clicked by, you just signed the contract, you just said your vows, you just, quit your old job. Like those are emotional moments. They don't sit in spreadsheets. 
you know, they sit deep in your brain and in your heart and in your soul. And when you've made that decision that your expectation is high and if you're, if you're going to get hurt, this is the worst time to hurt you. Um, so that first impression is, is critical. And I, you know, business leaders need to think about it, not just from a customer perspective. They need to think about it from an employee perspective because it's your employees that are taking care of your clients. And that employee onboarding to me is such a vital part of how businesses behave because the other thing that's happening, like when you onboard an employee correctly, their spouse or partner is hearing about that. Their kids might be hearing about it. Their, their ex-work colleagues who are also thinking of coming to work at this company are hearing about it. Like that first 90 days, it's like everything. And it's, it's the same with a customer buying a product or a service. Yeah, I would, I would agree. You're very, you feel somewhat vulnerable when you're making those huge life decisions or big purchases. Right. And so it feels great when the person or the entity on the other end is actually taking that seriously. And when you do it well, like again, you're buying, you're, you're putting as a brand, you're filling up your credibility bank. Like every customer shows up and you've got, a certain amount of credibility that you've always already established with that customer. It is your decision now as a brand, whether you're going to increase that bank of credibility or whether you're going to decrease it. And if you start decreasing it early, there's only so much there. Right. Yeah. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about the employee onboarding just to draw that line a little bit more clearly. So you're saying, Hey, if you get your, you need to start your customer experience with your employee onboarding. Because as you're hiring people and bringing them into your organization, you're teaching them the language and the methodology mm -hmm. of your company. And that's going to shine through with the customers. Do you have any kind of anecdotal stories about where, how that really worked for you guys at Blue Wolf? Uh, sure. I mean, we, we, we would do this with, we, we ran, first of all, we ran fairly complex projects and with very, very demanding customers. And we got our onboarding to such a level that we could take an employee into the company at a very young age who had little to no experience on Salesforce or with our methodology or, or with, you know, much of anything. And we could make them productive project managers within six months. We could make them productive business analysts within 90 days. And, and some of our largest, largest projects, like we did a massive project for a, an oil and gas company in New Jersey several years ago, where we took basically a college grad and within six months, she was running the entire initiative. Now, the reason she could pull that off was she was supported by a solid team that had a common language, she learned the language, which was fairly simple, and they could all support each other because they had this common way that they, that they approached the customer. If we had made her go out on her own as an individual contributor, trying to be a hero because she had some technical skill, but she didn't have a common language with the rest of the team, it wouldn't have worked. Hey listeners, we'll get back to the show in a minute, but first I wanted to ask you a question. Is your handoff process between sales and customer success repeatable, scalable, and optimized around your customer outcome? Could your process use some work? Check out our webinar, Mastering the Post-Sale Handoff, available on our website at taskray.com. Let's get back to the show. How can other companies become customer obsessed early on in their relationship with the, the people who purchase their goods or services? So we, talk, we talked about how that employee experience is so critical. Um, and, you know, I don't want to confuse that with, you know, you've got to shower gifts on your employees. Like that's not the strategy. The strategy is to make your employees engaged because they feel like they're adding value and they're learning and they have a career path. Uh, but on the customer side, you have to get into their shoes and if that means investing in time and energy where you are literally shadowing your customer through their day-to-day -day use of your product or similar products, um, 
you need to be, you need to have an organization set up that is constantly tapping into your customers. And um, I'm not a big fan of surveying, uh, but I am a big fan of creating events and get togethers and Zooms and whatever you want to do where you can just listen to your customers and where you can continue to refine the narrative that is your customer narrative. Like every organization, every, every organization has customers, every customer has a journey, but it's the collection of those journeys that actually makes up your brand. And CEOs that spend time and energy making sure that their employees are externally focused to constantly be learning about those journeys and constantly refining what those collective journeys look like. They're the ones that are creating products and services that customers are buying more and more of and aligning more and more of their spend with. Uh, so a lot of it is it's cultural and a lot of it's emotional. Um, you'll know it if you're inside of an organization that's internally focused. Here's how you know it. All of your calls are internal calls. All of your meetings are internal meetings. All of your email are, are written with attachments that have spreadsheets, that have numbers, that have like the internally focused organization talks about numbers. They talk about HR, legal, like everything that the customer doesn't give a shit about. Right. Right. The no. externally focused organization spends most of their day telling customer stories. Mm-hmm. And they figured out how to take that other stuff and detach it from what really matters in customer experience. Right. That makes a lot of sense. That would be a really good barometer for like you just the level. If you looked at your communications overall, how many of them were about internal things? Absolutely. Interesting. So what would you say if you had to pick one or two or three things, um, that every company should be doing for their customers within the first 90 to 120 days? Uh, The first thing I will say is this, is you need to know, you need to have a process or organizations need to have a, a, a process or a system so that they know whether a customer is having a good experience or a subpar experience without that customer having to tell you that. So it have usage metrics that you rely on adoption metrics that you rely on. So you can tell early on, like, is this thing sticking or not? Uh, you know, and there, and every business can, can come up with a, with a formula that, that tells you what a happy customer looks like from a data perspective. And once you have that, don't bother your happy customers. If I'm using the hell out of your product, like I don't want you pinging me with emails going, hey, we just want to check in and see how you're doing. Because you should actually know that. Right. Spend your time and your resource and your communication efforts going after the ones that you suspect are struggling. Mm-hmm. Whether that's through data from your call center, whether that's through data off of your website, whether that's through some anecdotal data from your selling organization, like however you distribute your product. Um, I think it's the brand's responsibility to identify a problem and leave your happy customers alone. Yeah, it, I agree. Well, so my grandma is, was Southern and she would always say, let sleeping dogs lie. That was like her thing, you know? <laughs> and it always feels disingenuous to me when the conversation I am a happy customer and I know they know and they're like, just checking in. I would rather them say something to the effect of, we see you're having great success. We'd love to have you write a customer story or something that acknowledges where I am at versus the template. Like, hey, just checking in. And so I agree with that. And and that doesn't mean you shouldn't be engaging your happy customers, you know, you could, but you can engage them through thought leadership. You can engage them through, um, connecting them with other customers in a similar industry. Like there's a million ways to engage customers without coming back at them during those first 90 days saying, are you happy? Like think about any relationship you've ever been in. Like when that question starts getting asked, it's, it's actually over. Yeah. Right? Totally. Like, You're like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I agree. Um, so I want to now switch gears and talking a little bit about balancing business needs and the customer needs. Uh, so a lot of CSMs and customer organizations as a whole deal with how to balance what you were saying, like, hey, being externally focused with the needs of the business, like HR and legal, because those are real things and you kind of have to balance the two out. Um, how should customer leaders ensure that they're getting customers the resources they need without going beyond the resources the business can offer? It's like, the, that's, that's, the, that's the trick of business, right? How, how do I not over-resource something, but how do I not under-resource it? Uh, again, I think it's you, you have to have some system where your finger is on the pulse and where you know, you know what that customer engagement number is on, you know, whether, you know, it's not so hot any, or it's not so innovative anymore, but NPS used to be a way that people would use to, to measure customer engagement, whatever your mechanism is, you can't necessarily fall for that either. Because I've thrown in my career more good money after customers that I just shouldn't have been trying to make happy. Hmm. So maybe the way I'll answer that question, Jamie, is that, and I'm, I, I may not, I'm not, uh, people can disagree, with, can disagree with me on this. Your culture also has to feel, as much as your culture has to be so fired up to engage with customers, and as much as your culture has to be externally focused and wants to spend their time on customer things and not spend their time on those internal things that we talked about. You also have to make your employees feel safe and know that it's okay if they're going to walk away from a customer. Um, and that's not to say that like, you know, there's like, there's like pride and like I walked away from 10 customers today. How cool is that? Cause you'll go out of business quickly. Uh, but you know, there are certain situations where a, a brand, cannot satisfy a customer's needs uh, or the customer doesn't really understand what their needs are, you know, or there are politics that your brand just will not be able to cut through. And I think having in an organization that at the end of the day is protective of the brand, as long as you're investing in it, as long as your employees see that this keeps getting better and better and cooler and cooler, guess what? This customer is really pissed at us and, you know, they're requiring more than I can provide or we can provide, you're better off saying goodbye to that customer than you are throwing valuable resource at it that the rest of your customer base may need. Right. So I think the real answer to that question is you have to, you have to be okay with the fact that not every customer is going to be with you forever. But if, you're, if you control that decision, and the customer doesn't necessarily control that decision, I think you keep your brand whole. So it's customer obsessed, but about the right customers, not every co any customer. Yeah, and by the way, I would say that that's being obsessed about the customer that left you. Because right. I'm saving you time. If I've figured out that this relationship is not gonna work, I'm yeah. doing you a favor. Yep. And the bigger brands and the the brands that have more resource to burn immediately think that a customer service issue can be solved with money. Oh, I'll just give you a discount. Oh, I'll give you a free month. Oh, I'll give you an extra one of whatever you bought. When the reality is that doesn't solve the problem. Right. right? Like the, I used to tell our people, I, I used to tell our, our, uh, my colleagues, they'd say, look, that customer's, you just told me two things. You told me they were too expensive and they don't like the work we're doing. Right. Well, let's separate the two. Okay. Because if they like the work we're doing, you know, price is a non-issue. Right. You're not going to solve a customer service issue by giving someone a discount. Right. right? Yeah. You can actually complicate it probably. You're going to complicate. You've got to get at the heart of where the disconnect is. And then you have to decide, can I solve that disconnect? And so back to your original question, like how do leaders decide where to apply resource and not to apply resource? 
it's again about having a great culture and an employee base that can identify, you know, when you need to do arthroscopic surgery versus when you need the knee replacement versus when you just need to put the thing out the pasture. Right. And so, uh, are you suggesting that people at all stratospheres of the organization would be trained to ask those questions and then also help make those decisions or just, give the information to the decision makers? Couple, couple things. Um, yes, part of that is I think the people that are closest to the customer need to be empowered to make decisions. And what I found as we grew Blue Wolf, and you know, we started as a small little organization and ended up with thousands of employees, um, people would try to escalate decisions to me, but I wasn't closest to the customer. So I actually wasn't capable of making that decision. I would bounce it back to the front line and say, hey, it's your decision. Now, a lot goes into that, right? Like how you compensate people and how you reward people will also dictate sometimes what sort of decisions they're making if you give them that authority. Mm -hmm. So it, it trickles back into incentive compensation and are we getting paid as a team or are you getting paid as an individual? Um, you know, incentives become a big part of it. But I think at the end of the day, the keeping things where the decision-making and the authority is closer to the customer, I think is a great theme that, that leaders should really look into and, and, and hopefully they can support. Another piece of that is it's impossible to make decisions in this day and age without access to accurate data and information. And this gets back to the technology platform organizations that have invested in a centralized customer systems where it's clear what's going on and where data doesn't have to be overly manipulated um, allows that frontline person to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. Organizations that have systems that are hard to access, it's impossible to create reports, the data's everywhere. All of a sudden it's the people that have access to the systems that have the power and they're rarely the ones that are closest to the customer. Right. Right. Yep. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. So how do you think customer leaders should handle changes in product and customer needs as the customer matures? So I, I, I think about it a different way. I think that, you know, if you have a vital product or a service, you're the reason your customer is maturing right? At least in whatever domain that you're, you're acting in. And so that, and I think that's why innovation is so important and it's the toughest thing that organizations have to grapple with. You know, any company that you and I have ever heard of definitely came up with a great product, but did they come up with five great products? Did they evolve those products? Did they create an ecosystem around their products where you know, not only did they have a ton of customers, but they had a, a whole third party network of folks that were whose careers and knowledge bases and skills were built around those, those products. And I think if you create that sort of momentum as a brand, you're the reason your customer's maturing. You're the reason your customer's growing. Um, you know, the other way to look at that is if your customer's growing faster, than your product or service or offering is, they're eventually gonna time out on you. Right. Because someone else is gonna leapfrog you into a position of strength. Sure. And so how would you, what mechanisms do you utilize to, I mean, it's one thing to kind of know how they're doing with your individual product or service, but how do you keep your finger on the pulse of like if the company as a whole, your customer as a whole is growing? And at what rate, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's case by case, but I, I think um, a lot, you know, you wanna work with growth companies. I'll put it to you that way. You know, that's, that's I think, and I, I don't, I should do some research on this, but I think more market value has probably been created by product organizations that have worked with growth companies than product organizations that have worked with organizations that are stagnant or, you know, are in decline. And one of the reasons you want to work with growth companies and, and, you know, not every brand has this luxury, but um, if you have a segment of your customer base that's growing rapidly, 
you will learn so much from them. Right. It will accelerate your product roadmap at, at a much greater pace because their innovation and their innovation needs will be what, what is going to drive your roadmap. Mm -hmm. um, you know, keeping your pulse on it, it's, you know, usage metrics, you know, organizations that are growing are buying more from you. They're buying more seats or they're subscribing to more versions or, or whatever your metric is. Um, you know, I, I remember I actually worked for a company years ago that sold exclusively to dot coms back in 2000. We went bankrupt. <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess a good, a, 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 a good business leader is making sure that they've got diversification across their portfolio of clients. You know, IBM might, might only be growing at one or 2% a year, but it's an $88 billion company. So all growth is valued differently, right? Do you have any playbooks that teams can use for when business needs and the needs of their customers are in conflict? I mean, some of it gets back to what we were talking about, like get your employees, put them in a safe place to make those calls in, 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 in the face of a customer. I would also say, and this doesn't go for every business, but, and it's probably less true in the consumer marketplace, but certainly in the B2B world, you know, you, your brand has to feel like it's flexible. Your brand has to feel like you are accounting for the unique needs of your clients. So identify the areas that aren't sacred cows for you and make those important to your customers, but also know your sacred cows. Right, like a great example of that is uh, if you look at Salesforce's evolution over the last 20 years, one of the greatest things they did early on was they drew a line in the sand and only did business with customers on an annual basis. You will pay my annual subscription fee to use my product. That was a sacred cow. Yep. Um, and their organization knew it. There were not exceptions. There were not, like they realized that that was such an important piece of fuel or, or, or piece of energy for their organization long-term that they just stuck to it. Now they had flexibility in a lot of other areas. You know, they, they would create all sorts of different arrangements to, to account for different customer scenarios, but they also knew what their sacred cows were. And I think, you know, when you think about your question, which is a great question where businesses run into trouble is when they don't know what, their sacred cows are. They don't know where their flexible points are. They mix and match the two all the time. You know, it may depend which sales managers involved that gets something approved and you end up in a situation where your company has less value either in the market or less value to that customer. That's a really good point. I love that knowing what your sacred cows are and what they aren't. That's a good one. You know, I, I'd say one other thing is you want to always be in a situation where you're buying time. Okay. That just goes for life in general. Like mm -hmm. the longer you have to make a client successful, you know, you're, the better your chances are. Now there's a point of diminishing returns. We've talked about that, yep. but buy yourself time, give yourself, give your product a real chance to stick in that organization forever. Yep. So how you contract with a customer and how you, what you're offering them, you know, time is a factor because the greatest product in the world may not be adopted right by an organization that has a certain amount of dysfunction in it. And every organization has its dysfunction. So sometimes you need a little more time to figure out where those hotspots are to truly get your customer success engine running to get to a point where now they're having success. Mm -hmm. We had, we had a client years ago, it was, a, it was a satellite company called Pan Amsat. It's a quick story. Like one of the banes of a software consultant's existence is go live. Right. right? You got to go live. And you know, it's like one of the first conversations you have with a customer. Like, well, we want to be live by May 15th. Yep. Right. Like, okay. I don't even know who you are. Like, I, I don't even know what you're trying to do, but you want to be live by May 15th. But that happens in just about every project. And all of a sudden the project team gets like caught up on the go live date. And there's this date. There's almost all of these dates are fictitious. Right. Like they, we're not like in most businesses. Right. 
And I was taught this by a customer, actually. This customer was called Pan Amsat. I think they were since bought by Intellisat. And Pan Amsat launched satellites. That was their business. And we were putting Salesforce in for them. And one of our first meetings, I said to the client, I said, when do you want to go live? She goes, when we're ready. And that was the, we, we weren't moving the goalposts. We weren't, they were going to go ready. They were going to go live when they were ready. Yeah. Like, you don't launch a satellite before it's ready to be launched. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's halfway built. We'll just kick it up there now. And I, it took this like artificial time frame pressure point that's on most projects. It just took it away. I can't tell you how great the project team acted and like, it was one of our most successful projects. And it's not, it's not like it took us three years to get these people successful. It was probably, the project probably was a couple months longer than a normal project of that size would have been. Yeah. But that attitude and that approach was, was, it taught me a lot that, you know, go live dates, don't get all hung up on them. Like, right. Yeah, I agree. You, a lot of times they're very arbitrary. It's just yeah. Pick that date, and then everyone's rallying around it. They picked a date because they committed it to their manager, and their bonus is tied to it. And and no one has actually thought through whether it's a good date or not. Right. Totally. Right. Yep. Okay. Well, I have one last question. This is the question that I love to ask. But what is the besides your company? <laughs> what is the best onboarding experience you've personally gone through or have seen in the market, and what made it so special? So I had a great one. Um, uh, almost a year ago when I bought these glasses that I bought at Warby Parker. And um, I, I only need reading glasses, but as I've gotten older, my need for reading glasses has, I really need them now all the time. And uh, someone told me about Warby Parker. I, I went online. They got to know me really quickly. Um, I ended up going into a store because I needed to have an eye test. When I walked into that location, there literally was um, someone sitting right at the front door. They asked me my name. They immediately knew why I was there. I had my eyes tested within, I didn't even have an appointment. And I had my eyes tested in about 15 minutes. They already knew what frames I wanted. And I had the glasses at my doorstep like three or four days later. And that, that whole experience was just an incredible experience. And on top of all of that, uh, their business model is such that they're like a fully integrated provider. So the price you pay for eyeglasses is about half of what you would pay um, through other providers because they've kind of disrupted the whole supply chain in a way where they, they have a piece of the entire supply chain. So that was a great experience. The other experience actually was on the back of a bad experience. So I, had a, I, I used to drive an Audi A7. And I drive cars into the ground. I don't lease them. I buy them and I just drive them until they have, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles on them. So this was last summer and I had locked my, I had lost the key to my Audi, which I had had this car for about seven or eight years. So I call the Audi service center and I'm told that I have to have my car towed to their center so that they can reprogram a key for the car. Now my car's 60 miles from the service center because we were out at the beach. So I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I got to tow this car there. I call up a tow truck. Tow truck's going to be like $1,500. The key's going to be $600. And I'm, I'm like, all right, I guess I screwed up. I lost my key. I got to do this. So I woke up the next morning before I'd done anything. Although I had told the guy at Audi, go ahead and order the $600 key. And I just Googled like Audi, lost Audi key. And sure enough, there's like a service, a guy that can come to my house without me having to tow my car and for $400 can give me a key and reprogram it. And I'm thinking to myself, like, why didn't the Audi service center tell me that there's a better way? So whatever. So I call up the service center. And this again gets back to our silo discussion of, service and sales like as a customer i just want to be i want my needs met this guy had no perspective on the fact that my audi had one hundred and thirty thousand miles on it i was probably ready for a new car anyhow and he probably should take good care of me because i've been an audi customer for a long time 
So I call up Joe at Audi, who, who was the guy I originally talked to. And I said, Joe, I, I don't need the key anymore. I got some guy coming out who's going to reprogram it for me. And he goes, well, I ordered the key already. You have to pay for it. And I was like, Joe, let me ask you a question. I found a guy that can come out to my house for $400, give me a key, reprogram it, and I'm good. And you're telling me I've got to tow my car to your location for $1,500 and pay you $600 for the key. What, what am I missing here? He's like, well, it doesn't matter. He goes, yeah, he literally said this. I'll never forget this. This is a total rip on Audi. He goes, well, look, I already ordered the key. So if you don't pay for it, I'm going to tell my boss and we're not going to service your car here anymore. What? Literally. Oh, wow. What was the next, what was the next sound you heard? A click? Click. <laughs> wow. What was the next thing I did? I oh. called Tesla. Oh. And within 10 minutes, I'd given them a $2,500 deposit. And the next day, a brand new Tesla showed up on my driveway. And I am now a Tesla fan. I bought a Model 3. It's $51,000 fully loaded, cheaper than my Audi. I traded in the Audi. I'm done with Audi. Yeah. What Joe didn't know was that I'd been kind of thinking about a Tesla for a while. But I'm, I was really happy with my Audi. He could have kept me in an Audi very easily if he had just kind of read the situation and know what was going on. But the fact I could buy a car over the phone in 10 minutes with a credit card and it showed up on my doorstep the next day, that was an insane customer experience. Yeah. Well, and it just, I mean, the fact that Audi lost a lifelong customer over uh, what effectively was $1,700. Well, is, not even really. Like all they had to do was eat the key. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to give it to you for free. Yeah. No, I, but I mean, like that's such a small amount of money for someone to be a lifelong loyal brand car buyer. Correct. Uh, that's, that's not, that's a bad customer experience. And just think about that for a second. Like I know what's going on there. Like Audi service and Audi sales are probably two different companies. Yeah. Right. They don't even care, but what, but they should, because the less, the fewer cars that Audi's selling and the more customers they're losing to Tesla, the less people are coming through that service center. Yep. So, you know, it's a flawed business model. Yeah. It's really what that experience was all about. Well, that was a great story. <laughs> I appreciate that. Won't let me service my car there anymore. Like, like I like having my car serviced there in the first place. Like that's like saying I won't give you any more poison. No, you're like, that's not, I mean, no one really loves having their car service. Oh, no, it's a freaking, it's, it's bad. Well, Eric, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and uh, expertise with us. Well, it was a lot of fun, Jamie, and uh, I look forward to doing more of it with you. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you have questions, comments, or want to share your top learning from today's episode, tweet us at Taskray or message us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes and let us know your favorite part. Until next time, you've been listening to the Customer Onboarding Podcast brought to you by Taskray, the customer onboarding success company.